Wow, I feel like I'm in a Pixar movie. <laughs> we'll watch it, or we'll watch it twice. That's great. Hey, if you have not seen the other uh, messages in this series, uh, Matt's message was awesome last week. He talked about the concept of heaven, uh, where God is and where you are. A couple of weeks ago, Kurt talked about uh, the fact that heaven is a real place you're going to go. Today, we are going to deal with uh, life after the afterlife. And what in the world am I talking about there? I'll explain that in a minute. In 1975, a man named William de Rijk came to visit a museum in Amsterdam, but he arrived several minutes late, and when he got there, it was closed, and so they turned him away. And, he, and William was so infuriated that he came back the next day, and he had a long knife in his belt under his overcoat, and he went inside of the museum, and he found the most priceless Rembrandt and took out that knife when no one was looking, and he just slashed all of the images on that priceless Rembrandt, and then he was arrested. And that's not how you manage your anger, folks, okay? <laughs> In 1991, a 47-year-old guy named Piero Canada also came into uh, a museum, and he had concealed in his coat uh, a hammer and a chisel. And he found Michelangelo's statue of David. You know that statue, that 13-foot-tall statue of David with him, like, in, in the buff? I mean, what's up with that? I mean, Jewish people didn't walk around naked like that in the 10th century B.C. But uh, so he found that 13-foot statue, and he took a hammer and chisel to it and defaced it. And I found out that both Museums, in fact, art museums regularly do have these sorts of things happen from time to time, and they have these guys that are professional art restorers. And the, and the art restorer can restore that piece of art back to its original glory without a scratch. And this is an analogy of what has happened with the human race. God originally made us in his image. God made us in his image. We are, according to the Bible, his best creative work. We are the zenith of his creative activity. And that image of God in us was mercilessly slashed and broken and defaced by sin, by the choice to sin. And God wants to save us from that. He wants to restore his image in us. And that restoration process, we call it salvation. We're going to explain that today. So we're talking about life after the afterlife. That's the end. I mean, that, that is the very end. And if you're going to understand the ending, you have to understand the very beginning. So here's the story. God made the world good. Unlike Platonic dualism, which says that the world is inherently, innately bad, the Bible doesn't teach this. The Bible teaches that the universe, the cosmos, the world that we live in is good. In Genesis 1.31, God created the world and he stepped back. And this is a figure of speech. But he stepped back and he looked at the entirety of his creation and said, that's good. It's good. So God created the world good. Mankind was made in God's image. Genesis 1.27 and Genesis chapter 3. We were created to for live forever with God in a parent-child, king-heir relationship. And we are earthbound creatures. God made us from the dust, and we are forever tied to this world. Sin interrupted God's plan to live forever with us, and we are the wrecked work of art. We are the Rembrandt, that work of art that has been slashed and defaced through sin. 
So we're going to talk about God's project to restore us back to his image. And if you have your Bible today, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to camp out there. We're going to walk through this passage and see what Paul has to say about life after the afterlife. And I'll explain that in a second. So what's the first thing we need to know from 1 Corinthians 15 about life after the afterlife? The first one is this. Jesus didn't rise from the dead so that you and I could have another religious holiday. That is not why Jesus rose out of the grave. Uh, and, and I love Easter just as much as the next guy. But while it has become a major religious holiday where we hunt for colorful, candy-filled plastic eggs and then sit down with, for a nice dinner with family, that is not, I do that, but that is not why Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead because his resurrection, his bodily resurrection from that tomb, that is the turning point. It is the fulcrum of history. It is the turning point of humanity. Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead is the hope of lost mankind. Now, some of the Corinthians in the first century were doubting whether or not the resurrection takes place. And so they had sent, uh, so Paul heard about this, and he writes them back and says, look, if the resurrection is, is not going to take place someday, then Jesus himself hasn't been resurrected, and you have believed in vain. And then he says in chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits, underline that, of those who have died. He's the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through one man, one human being. For all die in Adam and all live again in who? Jesus, in Christ, who is what? The first fruits. That just means the first. It's an analogy. Now, what you have to understand is that the Jews did not believe that they would die and go off somewhere to heaven. That was not their hope. The Jewish belief in the first century was that there was going to be a physical bodily resurrection at the end of the world, what they called the end of this age. Now, the startling claim of Christianity is that the resurrection has already begun in the person of Jesus from Nazareth, and it just blew their hair back. So the first thing we need to understand, if we're going to understand the end, life after the afterlife, we have to understand that it starts with the resurrection of Jesus because that's going to be our ultimate destiny, resurrection, which leads us to point number two. Number two, death is inevitable, but it ain't the end of the world. Death is inevitable, but it's not the end of the world. Our resurrection at the end of this age on the last day is guaranteed because of Christ. Look what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15, 23. He says, Christ the firstfruits, so him first. Then who? Us. At his coming, those who belong to Christ will also be raised. Listen, I'll tell you a mystery. This is a secret, he says. We will not all die, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the glimmering of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet of God will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishability. This mortal form must put on immortality. I came today. This is kind of a depressing sermon. I do apologize about that. But I came today to give you all, 100% uh, of you, some, some bad news. I came to give you some bad news. Bad news, are you sitting down? I can't see you. Are you all sitting? You're going to want to sit for this. You're all going to die. Wow, that's encouraging, huh? 
100% of the people in this room have a destiny with death. We're all going to perish someday. It's not good news. Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, said this. He was partly right. He said, no one wants to die. This was a year before he passed away. He was speaking to Stanford University. He said, no one wants to die. Even people who want to go to heaven don't want to die to get there. But death is the destination we all share. And you know what? Steve Jobs was partly right. Paul says, yeah, we're all going to pass away. We're all going to go into eternity except those who are still alive when Christ returns. That's the exception. When Jesus Christ comes back, those who are alive and still here, we will be transformed, he says. The perishable will put on immortality, imperishability. So he was partly right. So what does Jesus' resurrection mean for you and I? Well, first of all, it means that God hasn't abandoned us to the grave. Death isn't the final resting place for those of us who believe, those who have departed. Whether you're a believer or unbeliever, guess what they all have in common? You might even take a guess. They're departed. <laughs> They're gone. And God didn't make us to be departed. He made us for here. He originally made us as earthbound creatures to live forever with him in the Garden of Eden or on this world, in this good earth that he created. That's how he created us. But everybody's departed. Yes, those who believe in Christ are in heaven right now, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago. They're with Christ. They may even be blissful. They are consciously aware of their own existence in the presence, the full beam, the high beams of the presence of the Lord. But Paul says they lack one thing. Paul says they lack a body, and they want it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Verses 1 through 4, he says, Now to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But those who are absent from the body, who are believers, it's like they're naked. Anybody other than me ever have that nightmare of, you know, like you're, you wake up and you're walking down the street and you realize, I don't have any clothes on. I forgot to get dressed. You ever have that nightmare? I'm sorry if you do. But that's, why do, we, why do we have those kind of recurring nightmares? Because there's something about being exposed in public. There's something about that being exposed, being naked. And this is the analogy in 2 Corinthians 5 that Paul uses. Paul says it's like the disembodied Christian in heaven longs for his body because it's like he's naked. And until he is reunited with a perfected, resurrected body, he's restless. And this is what he teaches. God didn't make us for the hereafter. We will spend some time there with the Lord and with our loved ones, but he didn't make us ultimately for the hereafter. He made us for the here. He made us for this world. We are worldly creatures. We are earthly beings. And God said the world is good, but it's an unfinished renovation project. It also means that we'll be raised to life, never to die again. That's kind of a nice thought, isn't it? In a brand new, imperishable, resurrected, immortal body, that's what immortality means. It means you will never experience death again. That's cool. It also means that we will be our, fine, our fully realized selves. There are some things in my character and some bad habits. I don't know. Does anybody else have any bad habits? Yeah, because I've got some. I've got some terrible ones. My wife, I know this because my wife tells me about them all the time. But I've got some stuff that I do that's annoying. 
And I would rather not do it anymore. And I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I'm, I'm doing my best. I'm changing my character one, one uh, shade of glory at a time. Okay, I'm getting there. But on the day when Jesus comes back and the dead in Christ are raised and we who are alive and remain, we will be transformed and we will become our fully realized selves. All those habits, gone in a flash, in a glimmer. Are you excited about that? I, I, okay, good, yeah. <laughs> Sounds like it. Okay, so life after the afterlife. God is going to make us in this new resurrected body that's like Jesus's, that's going to be here forever. He is going to make that our perfect, perfected, resurrected self. Number three, here we go. Heaven is important, but it's not your final destination. Well, in America, we have been taught this myth that we die and we just sort of float off to heaven as these sort of celestial Christians, I don't know, these sort of Christian ghosts, and we're just floating around up in heaven or in the clouds or something. That's a myth. That's not what the Bible teaches. Heaven is important. You will spend some time there, but it's not our final destination. Look at what Paul says here. 1 Corinthians 15. He says, after this resurrection and people are transformed, he says, then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to God, the Father, after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power, he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. That last enemy to be destroyed is death. The greatest enemy that you and I face is not your coworker who works in the cubicle <laughs> next to you. It's not your mother-in-law. It's death. It's death. That's the greatest enemy that we will ever face. And, and Paul says that Jesus... After he comes back, transforms the living, resurrects the dead, will spend a period of time upending the kingdoms of this world. In Revelation 20, John describes it like this. He calls it the millennial reign of Christ. That means he describes it as a thousand years when Jesus will be here and he will be literally putting the kingdoms of this world and the rulers of this world under his subjection. And Paul says when he is done with that project of subjecting the world to his rule, he will hand the perfected kingdom over to the Father. He will give it back to the Father. And then check this out. Revelation 21. Creation will be consummated. John said, here's the end. Here's what it's going to look like. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And the first heaven and the first earth had passed away he goes on to say, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. These are figures of speech. But he said, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. It was coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a beautiful bride, dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them himself forever. They will be his holy people. God himself will be in their midst. There will be no more tears, no more pain. No more suffering, for the old order of things has passed away. Isn't that encouraging? You are not going to spend eternity in heaven. You're going to spend eternity on earth, but it will be heaven on earth. It will be heaven come down. And this world, this project that God started in Genesis will finally be realized. It will be fully actuated and Paul uses this analogy of new birth in Romans chapter 8. He says, I consider that our present sufferings 
are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits an eager expectation. He said it groans. It's like a woman about to give childbirth. I watched four children being born, and I just want to say to all you women, thank you for being women. <laughs> and I want to say thank you, Jesus, for not letting, <laughs> making me go through that, because that, <laughs> that looked really painful. And I can tell you, right up to the moment of that joy, that little bundle of joy, that little baby burrito, they wrap them up, you know, and hand them to the dad. Right up until the moment of that joy entering the world, it isn't joy. It's pain and it's travail. And Paul says that's what it's going to look like at the, at the end of the world. The world is groaning. It's trembling. It's, it's travailing as a woman in childbirth ready to give birth to something brand new, a new thing. And that's going to be the new heavens and the new earth. So heaven is important. But it's not your final destination. You'll spend some time there, but you're coming back here with Jesus. And that's good news. The last, Paul, the last thing Paul wants us to know about life after the afterlife is this. Number four, grief is certain. But it doesn't have to dominate our lives. Paul ends this chapter by landing on our hope. This is the so what of the passage. Well, so what? What does all this mean? Paul says, this is our hope. Look at what he says. He says, when the perishable has been clothed with, imper with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Hallelujah. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin because of the law, he says. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have the hope of eternity with Christ. We have the hope of heaven and the hope of spending forever with God in a renovated, brand new earth. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. He says, brothers, I, I want you to understand that we grieve. We grieve for those that we've lost. But we do not grieve as those who do not have hope. We grieve, he says, with hope. I got a call on Friday, or text on Friday, from my assistant, Heather Evans. Many of you know her. Just the most faithful human being on the planet Earth. One of the most tireless servants for God I've ever met. And her mom, she is the same age as me, her mom passed away Friday. And so I called her, and she was inconsolable on the phone. Just, I, I, I can imagine, just couldn't even talk. And handed the, the phone to Alan, and we talked for a little bit. I said, I'll, I'll give you a holler tomorrow. And yesterday, I got a text from her. Our staff got a text from her. And she was just gushing about how much mercy and grace that, of God's presence that she has felt in these dark hours. And I, I, I looked at that text, and I just thought, that is what I am talking about. I am talking about a person who grieves the loss of their loved one because they're gone and she'll never have another cup of coffee with her in this life, another lunch date. But she doesn't grieve without hope because we have the hope that she will see her mother again. And I don't know about you. I'm sure you're in the same boat with me, but there's some folks I want to see again. I want to see my little sister that I lost when I was nine years old. I want to see my dad 
me and my brother were sitting last night, and he's visiting from Florida. And man, we were talking about these funny stories. Most of the stories I couldn't tell you in public. I mean, they're, th- that's what I get in trouble for, is telling these stories about my dad. But man, we just, you know what we do when we get together and talk about him? We celebrate that uniqueness that was him and still is him with the Lord in, in heaven. And man, I'm telling you, I miss him every day. And I want to see him every day. But I don't grieve, and I do grieve him, but I don't grieve without hope. Paul says we grieve with hope. We grieve with the hope that we will see these people who have passed on again, those people who have died in the faith. And I want to tell you today that you have hope. You have that hope. I have, as a pastor over the last 20 or so years, uh, unless you're in the medical field, you probably haven't experienced a lot of this, but I've had my fair share of death, um, bedside, um, deathbed conversions. And I've also had my fair share of bedside non-conversions. And I'm here to tell you, when I'm holding the hand of an 87-year-old guy, and he has lived his entire life for himself, not a thought, not given a thought to eternity, nothing. And he is an unbeliever, and he is minutes from stepping into the unknown. I am telling you, the fear, the terror in his eyes is like nothing I could describe to you. It's like nothing I could describe to you. Because he is grieving the loss of his life, and he doesn't have any hope. And I'm begging him in those final moments, let me give you hope. Let me send you off in faith. He doesn't have it. Now, I can't tell you what it's like to, to sit at the bedside of a believer, an old gal who's lived for Jesus. I remember Pam Funseth. She was a saucy old gal, boy. You better not get in her way, but she loved Jesus with all her heart. And I remember sitting by her bedside at the hospice and watching her slip into eternity, and she had the hope that she was going to spend eternity with God. And that is my plea to you today. I can't doll it up. I can't make it any more simple than that. You can have hope today. You can have it. Let's pray. You may be here today and you've been thinking about this and you've decided today is your day. And you're not going to walk out that door until you've given your heart to Christ. And if that's you today, I want you to pray something like this with me. The same thing I prayed when I was nine years old, laying in my bed. Heavenly Father, I'm a sinner. I've blown it. And I own up to that. And Dr. Jeff was right. I'm ruined. I'm wrecked. And sin, sin has got me. And you're the only one who can restore me and fix me back to your original image that you made me to be. And right now I confess my sin. I ask you to wash me clean, wash me through and through of my sin right now in this seat. Wash me clean, Lord God. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe he rose three days later. And right now I declare that I am God's child. I am God's son. I am God's daughter. 
with your heads bowed, if you pray that prayer right now, God is beginning a renovation project in your life. It's called new birth. And from the inside out, the Holy Spirit is moving on you now to transform you into a child of God forever, forever. I want you to just receive it. God, thank you. Just receive that work of the Holy Spirit. Some of you are believers, and frankly, you believe in Jesus, you believe in God, but you're not fear, sure what the future has in store. F frankly, you're fearful of death. I talk to people like this all the time. You're scared to death of dying because you don't want this life that you have lived for to be wrenched from your fingertips, to be wrenched from your fist. Will you just receive the encouragement this morning? Just open your heart, open your mind. Just receive the encouragement this morning. You are going to spend eternity with Jesus, first in heaven, next here, in a renewed, resurrected body forever. Now, will you make the commitment to start living for the kingdom? Live for the kingdom of God. Not this fleeting, fleeting stuff that we cling to. And begin to orient and order your life around his eternal kingdom. And some of you have lost loved ones. And I want to say this to you. I want to encourage you. If they have died in the faith, they are with Christ. If you don't know whether they died in the faith, that, that decision, that's beyond your pay grade. You don't, you don't know. The only person right now that you can make right with God is you. Because someday your kids will be wondering where you went. And don't you want to make it sure today, this is your day to make it sure. Heavenly Father, we give ourselves to you today. God, we look forward to the day when you renovate all things, when you renew this cosmos and this world and resurrect our bodies and call them out of the graves. God, we celebrate it. We celebrate it. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, guys, we're going to... We're going to worship one last time. I'm going to have the ushers come up. We always give. We always take the offering while we worship. And that's intentional because we want you to know, man, this whole thing we're doing today, this is an act of worship. And as we sing the words to this song, if you don't know the song, will you, as you're giving, being generous to the Lord, but will you just, just think about the words to this song? Let the words and the power of this music just lift you. Lift your spirits today, okay? Let's worship and let's give. Woo. Almost sung my voice out on that song, man. Oh, I hope that encouraged you today. Do you feel encouraged? Tell you what, I'm leaving with a skip in my step today. And I'm leaving with my brother named Skip. That's, to, that's double blessings. Hey, listen, if you're here today and you made a decision for Jesus... Uh, all along the walls here on these uh, ta tables, these back tables, we have these new believer packets. We want you to grab one. We'll help you get started in your walk with Jesus. Also, uh, attend the next First Steps uh, uh, class, and that'll give you the tools to help you as well. We have communion on the sides. And listen, if you made a decision for Christ or any significant decision for Jesus today, we've got some people down in the front after the service. Come down, talk to somebody, pray with somebody. Hey, listen. I want to leave you with a benediction. I know we're a non-religious church, but, but I want to leave you with one prayer, okay? Here it is. I'm going to put it up on the screen. It comes from Ephesians 1.18. It says this, Now I pray that the eyes of your heart may be opened, enlightened, 
in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. I pray that for every one of you that you walk out that door and the rest of the week and the rest of your lives, your eyes will open to the rich and glorious inheritance that you have in Jesus. God bless you. Have a great week.